It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. What an unusual set of circumstances brings us to this place. And as you've heard from about three different people, that God is orchestrating something today. Um, that call came about 8 o'clock that someone came into the church and did what they had done and then got here. I just, let me just pause and say, one, thank you for our worship team who picked up and moved here. I did. I was walking up the... Um, I'm getting a little ring, guys, back up here. I was walking up the hallway and going to my office to try to finish studying and um, got right here, and that song was being sung, and the words were, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And that was like a message for me right that moment. Dwayne, I want you to know something. I've got this. I'm in total control. And so the worship team comes up and does an incredible job. Our trustees did an incredible job. Brother Adrian this morning, Mary made the phone call, and, and our security team said, hey, we'll step up and do what we need to do uh, to prevent this from happening again. And it's just been an incredible morning with the family of God. And Tyler, God bless you, dear brother. Once again, just being used by God to soothe and to bring comfort. And you may be here for a very special reason and not even know it. As the Brother David said, we're not sure why God allows. No, he didn't allow. He planned this one. This wasn't an allowance. This is God planning this. And there's a special reason. Let's not, let's not waste one iota of what God has for us today. Now, we are start. I was going to say we we're going to start, but really we are starting um, our new series uh, kind of based off our Sunday, our uh, vacation Bible school, Scar Wars. But, but really not, because we borrowed the music, and the idea was, and is, is to take and look back at the origins of, of God, which God has no beginning, but the origin of Satan, good and evil, and how we can be prepared for spiritual warfare um, in this world that we live in. And then, um, due to the events this week, which I'll explain in just a moment, God really changed the sermon for today. So we're still going there. And I really still think this is the first message for Star Wars. Just totally different um, than I thought and the way that I would have it played out. So uh, some of you know, and we have guests this morning, some of you don't know, that Judy and I um, took our great adventure. This is the year of our 40th wedding anniversary. And we planned this great adventure of taking the train to Chicago uh, and then from Chicago, drive or take the train to Sacramento, and then we're going to rent a car, did rent a car, and just explore uh, by roads um, California. And it really was the most magnificent trip I've ever been on. Um, we went about 2,100 miles on the train, and we drove about 1,000 miles in about five days. And uh, it was just, just wonderful to see the beauty of the country and to see how God has created all that he has created. And so part of, part of the journey was we left Sacramento and we went further north into California. We were staying at a place called the Wharf Masters Inn. And it really sits on the coast of the Pacific, Pacific Ocean. And it's just beautiful, just beautiful. And uh, as we're driving up toward there, we go through some mountains and we finally break into the coast. And then the next day, we drove further north to look at the giant redwoods. And they were just magnificent. But probably the most magnificent thing was, is California 1, which is very famous, follows the coastline. Now imagine, if you will, cliffs about 100, 203 feet, uh, 100, 200, 300 feet straight down, straight down. 
Imagine that. Um, imagine the ocean breaking on these magnificent cliffs and huge rocks. Imagine, by the way, it's 53 degrees, and imagine a, a kind of a misty fog hanging over all of this. And as we're driving, we, we realize something. In many places, there are guardrails that would keep a person from going over the edge. But in a lot of places, there was not. In fact, I noticed that those spots, Judy, hung on a little tighter. <laughs> Guys, you need to go out to California and drive this highway. You get to be a race car driver. I mean, we're just, I'm whipping around this way and this way. But I want you to know, I mainly did that in the mountainous area. I didn't do that on the coastline because, again, there were areas 100, 200, and 300 feet straight down with no guardrail. And I realized 24 inches. Just 24 inches. And a person missteers, overcorrects, and it's 100, 200, 300 feet straight down. And I said to myself, when the events of this week started unfolding, I wonder if that's where our country is. I wonder if we're dancing with the devil, if you will, and we're like that driver who, rather than seeing how far away they can stay from the edge, see how close they can get for the thrill of it. And I wonder if we have drifted too far and maybe gone over the edge. On uh, one day, we went to San Francisco. And we took the BART in and just explored the city. We took a bus tour and saw all the things of San Francisco. And you know what? It wasn't as strange as I thought it might have been, but... Things like, can you imagine blocks and blocks of homeless people? People just sleeping on the streets and sometimes with cardboard, sometimes with no cardboard. Um, the, the culturally perverse things you might see in a town like San Francisco, those kind of things. And then we went back to our hotel that night. And we had not really kept up with the news during the week. I had not heard. Uh, if I what did, it was very briefing brief, but I had not heard really about the shooting in Louisiana. I'd really not heard about the shooting in uh, Minnesota. Had not heard about that. But as I turned on the news, actually I turned on the television, and you know what you do, you, you kind of flip through the channels, and I stumbled onto um, the local news channel, and I noticed that they were playing news, and they shouldn't have been. It was about 9 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock, and that's when we learned of the shooting um, in Dallas, Texas, the ambush of those police officers. What was it, 12? I think they finally determined were wounded, five of them fatally. And the, the newscaster, as they were talking, just started describing this, I felt that same sense of, I'm not sure what the word is, that I felt on 9-11. Because when they first started reporting the news, an officer had been shot, shot in the shoulder. And that's certainly tragic, but, but certainly not to where it was going. And I remember, I can remember this day, 9-11. And I walked into the office and Val Hodges was sitting at the desk. And she said, hey, have you heard a plane flew into one of the Twin Towers? I said, really? I said, was it a small plane? Like you, probably thinking an accident. And, and she said, I don't really know. It just said a plane flew into the tower. And I said... Huh. Huh. 
And that morning, as more details became available, and the horribleness of that day unveiled itself, I realized it was no longer a, huh. It was, oh no, the world had changed forever. And the newscaster said that. As we watched, and all of a sudden, they almost shouted over the news that, that three officers were, were killed, and then four officers were killed, and then eventually a fifth officer died. As the tragedy unveiled, it went from a, uh, you know, it's, it's bad that a man may have got shot in the shoulder, but as the tragedy of this unveiled, this, this, this feeling just overwhelmed me, and you could tell it overwhelmed the newscaster and may well have over, overwhelmed you. And he said these words, we'll never be the same again. Perhaps, I don't think in recent history that I can think, officers have been killed. Even in 2009, four officers were killed. But nothing like this. And I think I realized, again, I was starting to think, we really are, as a nation, in trouble. We're in a difficult place. And I knew one thing, whatever I planned to preach could wait a week because I really think we needed to pause again and talk about our country and our culture and the desperate need... The desperate need not for them to get right because, again, our nation's acting like, like a, a nation would that doesn't know Christ. Lost people will act like lost people. I knew we needed to talk about us and how are we going to respond, how are we going to act in a culture like this. What will our response be? Someone said something. I preached on this kind of like this about a Sunday night about a month ago. And someone said, you really need to preach about this on Sunday morning. And I said, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, well that's kind of what we're going to do today. Different scripture perhaps, but really kind of talk about what we talked about that night. As we were standing there on the highway, it was, it was uh, one of those times when I don't talk that much. I know. I, you say, don't talk that much. Have you ever listened to one of your sermons? You know, uh, it, I, it's just different. But I, I walked up and there was a couple there and I actually engaged them in conversation, which is really not something I do. And we talked a while and my wife, who will talk to rocks or trees, it doesn't matter, um, realized, wait a minute, she was missing a conversation. So she wondered, she was down taking pictures. She wandered up and uh, I walked over with a guy this way and she talked to the lady and so we were having this probably 30-minute conversation just talking about California and you know, just chatting. And, and the gentleman said something that I totally missed. And probably it, it shows the difference in cultures. He, we were talking about the beauty of nature, and he said something like this. Yeah, yeah, it's really beautiful. I just wish we could lay aside all that silly superstition. Now, in my Christian mindset, I assumed he was talking about evolution. Because the big, silliest superstition I know of is that I came from a monkey. You know, again, I challenge you once again to get on PBS and read what they're selling because you think you need faith? The folks who believe that stuff they're selling, they need a lot of faith. You know, if we had the faith of the people who believe that stuff, we would be a bigger and stronger body of Christ. So I just assumed, I really did, I just assumed he was talking about evolution, that, that this stuff was so beautiful, there's no way it just happened. Only later did I realize that he was referring to God. I managed to get God in the conversation. He got kind of quiet after that, but, but I, I managed to get God in the conversation, but I really thought he was talking about this superstition. And then I realized that's the cultural divide. That's the divide that we live in a culture today where most folks think God is su silly superstition. 
And so we want to address that today. I almost think, and you're going to take your Bibles and look at Romans chapter 1. Now, there's no way we can cover even a small portion of Romans chapter 1 today. But we can cover a little bit, a little bit. And you'll see where I'm going with that in just a moment. But if there's ever a time I think that we are reliving Scripture, I honestly believe is today in Romans chapter 1. You know, of course, Paul was writing to the church at Rome. And as he wrote, he starts describing the culture of the Gentile world there in Rome. And my fear is, is that America, you know, I, I said before, I fear that America is becoming Europe. That a place where virtually God, God does not exist, is not worshipped at all in so many places of Europe. A, a place where there are museums and monuments and they're called cathedrals where thousands of people used to worship God and now virtually no one does. You've heard me express fear that we're becoming like France, a place where, uh, as Andrea could tell you, just coming back from, 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 from Canada, not France, from Canada, and how that you go up there and, and you'll have a street of three or 400 people on it and no one gets up and goes to church. No one because it's almost a, a, a godless society. But I'm also afraid we're becoming wrong. Interesting, just an interesting note, 14 of the first 15 emperors of Rome 14 of the first 15 emperors of Rome were practicing homosexuals. This isn't about that. But I want you to see it's, it's, it was a, just a, a perverse kind of culture. The, the sexualness of, of, and this will be PG rated, the sexualness of Rome was incredible. And I think most of us would agree the sexual overtones in America are huge these days. Are huge these days. And, and, and Paul in Romans chapter 1 begins talking about all of that. But I want to jump in in verse 28 where he says something that should prick our ears up. He says this in Romans chapter 1 verse 28. And because they, and they being the Gentile world, remember this letter though written to the church at Rome is about the Gentiles. This portion is. And Gentile meaning lost people. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. Because the Roman people did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. In other words, you may put it this way. The, the Roman culture, and they were, of course, polytheistic. They had many, many gods. Uh, the God of creation really wasn't in their, in their, in their bag too much. But, but they, they had all these gods they worshipped. And, and they, they, they had taken the, the gods and would practice and weigh them out. Today we have in American culture and in European culture and in our friends to the North culture, we, we have weighed God as a culture and found Him not worthy. We have placed God in the balance and not found Him worthy. There's a story back in Daniel chapter 5. Where, where the king had, was totally desecrated the temple. He, he had desecrated the, the gold objects of the temple. And a hand appears and writes on the wall. Y'all remember that story? And one of the things, as Daniel translates what's written on the wall, um, his, he, you know, his knees are trembling, he's shaking. What does this mean? He calls Daniel in. And one of the things that Daniel says, the handwriting on the wall said was this. You've been... Weighed in the balance and found wanting. You've been weighed in the balance 
and found wanting. People, a total flip of that, people have weighed God. In this culture we live in, they have weighed God and found Him to be silly superstition. They have found Him, they've weighed Him in the balance and said, the God that we want is not you. Rather, the God we want would be something of pleasure, of a sinful nature. So because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. Three times, three times in the scripture, Paul says God turned them over to to a different mindset. Now, there's some debate about what does that mean. What does it mean that it says that God turned their minds over? Some say it's simply inactive. Uh, It was described this way by one of the older writers. It's described that God, imagine God holding the rope of a boat. And the current is pulling on the boat. And the person holding the rope lets the boat go. And the boat drifts. That's one interpretation. That's one way of viewing this. That God has held his hand on on, on man's morality and man's culture. And he's let go of the rope. And because they did not think him worthy, he's let go of the rope. And let man be man. Let the debaseness of man be as debased as it wants to be. And, And some people say that it's the exact opposite. That it's actually God active. You remember when... When God chose to judge His people back in Ai, they'd already defeated Jericho, and they were sitting in the camp, and so a small army defeated the mighty army of Israel. And because there was sin, God did active something active to intervene. Whatever it is, God, I believe, is this culture of Romans, the, the, the replay of Romans chapter 1, is actively or inactively... Letting us have our way. That word, a worthless mind, means a debased mind. It means a mind without conscious. A mind without conscious. And psychology will tell you that a person with no conscience is a seriously sick person. And we live in a culture today where virtually anything and everything goes. And that's what happens when you really weigh God in the balance and find him wanting. So one of the things I read was that that sin begats sin. A sinful culture left to itself will only become more sinful. A sinful culture left only to itself will only become more sinful. Society left to itself is not self-healing. Society left to itself is not fixing. Sinful culture becomes more and more Simple. So, Paul continues in verse 29, and I'm not, this is not really the message, but I think you need to see it. Because again, I want you to see how our culture today could well be like Rome. They are filled, and he uses that term filled, and he uses this word full. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy. Murder, quarrels, pause, pause. I think I read yesterday where President Obama said, and I quote close, can you quote close? That our nation is not as divided as people think. 
Yeah, I kind of did a huh too. I want to tell you something that happened because I think it's relevant. Judy and I, against it was my decision, it was a bad decision, took a, took a red-eye flight, which means we drove around all day Friday, went to Lake Tahoe, did all kind of cool things. But our flight home last Friday night didn't leave until midnight. And so we had a lot of time. And so we thought we could sleep on the plane. She did some, I didn't. And we landed in Atlanta at 7 o'clock in the morning. So we walked down to our gate, and she went to find something to eat. And I'm sitting there, and this was Thursday. The shooting of the police officers was Thursday night. So this is Saturday morning, some 36 hours later. And I'm pretty sure it was CNN, not Fox. It was CNN. And they were still playing continuous coverage over and over again. And they would, they would play some of the interviews from the police officers' families. They would play some interviews from the shooting and, and of the families in Louisiana and Minnesota. Um, they were giving people the opportunity, professional people, to get their opinion about what's going on in America and, and this and that. And I was going to tell you it was a very uncomfortable situation because there was about 60 people there. And, and I saw in that room many white folks, many African-American folks, some Hispanic folks, and I didn't like what I saw on their faces. It was somewhere beyond concern to bitterness. I looked as I saw some of the white people in the crowd with this, this hatred look. And I saw in the crowd some African-Americans with that same look. And I was frightened. I said, oh God, where are we going with this? Where are we going? Are we, are we going to tear each other apart? As you know, I spent, I spent five days, four days at the Southern Baptist Convention, and the major thing was racism in America. There is racism in America. But it's on both sides. I'm telling you guys, and this is where we're going eventually, trust me, the church has got to be the church. The church has got to be the church. So there's this, in this description of Romans chapter 1, there's this quarrels, there's deceit, there's malice. They are gossips and slanderous and, pause, God-haters. God-haters. Yes. In, in this country that with such strong Judeo-Christian values, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, won't even pause, disobedient to parents, an undermining of the family, won't even pause, undiscerning, unable to discern morality and spirituality, unable to discern, Unloving, heartless, and unmerciful. And then verse 32 is like, what? And although they know full well God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Guys, can I just say something? America should know better. I understand some cultures where they didn't even know the name of Jesus 
We are a nation that is so gospel-saturated. And yet we are living so much like a heathenistic nation. We should know better. Even, even Bubba down south who doesn't go to church knows that if you sin, you've offended God. They know full well God's just sinners that those who practice such things deserve to die. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. This isn't darkest Africa. This isn't somewhere where the gospel's never been spread. It is America. And we understand that there's a payment for sin. Most throughout society, most people go, yeah, I know, yeah, I know. In this culture, that there's a payment for sin. But that we not only do them, they not only do them, will applaud others who do it. It's almost like we... The culture is sinful and then applaud those who either A, join them or B, choose to be more sinful than they are. Where we used to applaud heroes, now we applaud perverseness. And we're in a rough place. We are in a difficult place. But look at me. We're not in a hopeless place. Because you see, the gospel is a message of hope. Um, that's a good place for an amen. Now I know a chunk of us sitting in this room today were, were good boys and girls growing up. We didn't smoke and we didn't chew and we run around with people who do. I understand that. But some of you understand the gospel of hope in a really deep way because you are in bondage to, to some kind of a sexual sin or pornography or drugs or alcohol or you were just a mean person and God in His grace reached down into your heart and radically and totally changed you and you said, let me tell you something. I know for a fact that the gospel is a gospel of hope. And just for the clarity of the record, on our best day, if we weren't in those situations, those of us who went to church from the nursery were just as lost, just as perverse, on our best day, we were totally 100% depraved. And God reached down in His grace and in His mercy and saved us. Oh, listen. These, just like today, was a different day. Like it stepped out of our comfort zone. I'm glad to report to you today that today's a great day for the gospel. Because the gospel is the hope for lost mankind. What a great time to be an American, land that I do love. What a great time to be a believer in America, where we have opportunities. Because I'm telling you that when sin doesn't deliver, when, when people figure out that sin doesn't deliver, and they become refugee, refugees, and they're looking for something, by God's grace, we'll be able to tell them what they're looking for, and that is a Savior, that is Jesus Christ. That's why the church has got to be the church. We don't need to be religious. We don't need to be a club. We've got to be the church. 
Because in this dark world, the world needs the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only is there, not only is there hope in this, but there's also the privilege. We get the privilege of living in the most needy hours in America to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful opportunity. Now, you've got to ask yourself and say this. Okay, Dwayne, what do we need to do? I, I remember we were sitting in the office. I shared that, that Sunday night. We were sitting in the office, or Wednesday night, and we were sitting in the office, and Vicki said something, our financial manager said, so what do we do, Dwayne? You know, I think my wife asked me yesterday when I told her kind of what the message was going to be about. She said, so what do I need to do? And I'm so glad in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, God gives us a very good description of what it means for the church to be the church in a dark time. What does it mean for the church to be the church in a dark time? He doesn't leave us wondering what we should do. I know the setting's Old Testament. I know it's a different situation, but it speaks volumes. If there's a recipe for what we should be doing in this time of our culture, this is it. He says this. You know, God speaking to Solomon says, if my people who are called by my name. Let's just pause there. Clearly, the ball is in the people of God's court. Have you give up yet on, on, on a party? I've said this about three times. Those of you who are saying, well, if the Democrats get elected, things are going to be all right. Really? Some of you over here is going, well, if the Republican gets elected, everything will be all right. Really? Let me tell you something. The answer has not, will not, nor will ever be a political party. The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is Jesus Christ. We have got to be sure that we understand who we are. And who the answer is, and again, not religion, not a denomination, not some habit you do on Sunday because your mama taught it. I'm talking about a vibrant living relationship with the living Son of God, Jesus Christ. We've got to be understood that we are called to be those who are called by my name. Called, listen, we are the people of God. Not Baptist, not Methodist. We are the people of God. Those who are called by my name. And he's even got a good description. What does it mean like, what does it look like to be a people of God? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to camp there for just a few moments, and then we'll come back to 2 Chronicles. But in Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus said. What, is it, what does it look like to be a people of God? He says, you are the salt of the earth. So, so we need to understand that Jesus is the answer, not a political party. We need to understand that, that we are the salt of the world. And what does it mean to be that salt of the world? Well, salt doesn't mean as much. Salt raises your blood pressure. And the doctor says, don't use too much of it. Back in the days of Christ, when Jesus said this, salt was more valuable than gold. When a Roman soldier was paid, he was often paid in salt. Have you ever heard the saying before, he's not worth his salt? He was talking about a Roman soldier who didn't do his job. He didn't earn his salt. Man, listen, listen, listen. Man can't live without salt. Now, we probably don't need to empty the salt shaker, but our bodies to live demand salt. 
cultures can't live without salt. America will implode without the salt of God, without God's people being the salt of the earth. You want proof? God calls the church out in the rapture and ensues the time of God's judgment and the world implodes. You take away godly influence in a culture and it implodes. You're the salt of the earth. Salt preserves. The only way, there was no refrigeration back in those days and so the only way to keep meat was to take it and salt it down. And salt stopped decay. Church, the, way, the message we have and the way we live should be a constant battle against decay in our culture. We shouldn't be part of the decay. We shouldn't tolerate the decay. We should be an antidote for the decay through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salt flavors. It tenors. I mean, I don't know how... Some of you guys say, well, I don't use salt. What? How do you eat mashed potatoes without salt? How can you eat green beans without salt and some bacon fat? I'm telling you what, I promise you this, I would be thinner if there was no salt. Because I'd say there ain't nothing worth eating this. Listen, listen, as the salt of the earth, we are to bring a flavor to society. And that flavor, in case you're wondering, well, what should that flavor taste like? A lot like Jesus. <laughs> Not a bunch of rules and regulations. Not a bunch of do's and thou's. And there's place for that. Man, when people see us, they should see Jesus Christ. They should see the love that He had. Again, I remind you, I remind you this all the time. The only time Jesus got fired up was at the church, the religious leaders, the temple leaders, not the sinners. Now's not a time for anger at lost people. Now's the time to share the gospel with lost people. Now's the time to share love with lost people. Now's the time to set the example of Jesus Christ in a lost culture. Salt heals. You know, Judy, Judy's always telling me, you know what to do, health-wise. I'll get a sore throat. And she'll say, did you gargle with... Coca-Cola? <laughs> did, you, did you gargle with a little strawberry milkshake? No, what she said. Have you gargled with salt water? You know why? Because salt has a healing property. Because it fights infection. When Jesus said you're the salt of the earth, He says you're to, through the power of the gospel to be a preservative. You're to flavor and you are to heal. You're the salt of the earth. But look what he says. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? Folks, listen to me. We've lost our effectiveness as salt. Not all of us and not every church. But as a whole, as a whole, we've lost our effectiveness to be salt. I think we got too busy being church and not salt. I think we've got too busy focusing in and not looking out. I think we got too busy catering to ourselves than sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. How do you re-earn that trust? Now you do understand what I'm saying, don't you? 
The world has that much respect for the church. That's a shame. You understand when you used to be able to say I'm a pastor, there was an air of respect, and now there's an air of scorn. How do you earn that back? Man, the only hope is proven over time and time. Rebuild trust. When trust is broken in a family, when trust is broken in a marriage, when trust is broken in a a contractual relationship in business, I'm telling you, the only way is through time to re-earn that trust. And the church needs to live in such a way, and I'm not talking about our nose in the air, I'm talking about loving God, loving people, being like Christ. The only way to regain that saltiness, regain that trust, is to live it over time. This world needs to see Jesus in us. Needs to see Jesus in us. And boy, what a time to live that out. He says it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Trampled. When, so- when salt loses its ability to preserve and to flavor and to heal, it becomes sand. When salt loses its ability to preserve and to flavor and to heal, it becomes sand. Salt is salt not by appearance, but what it can do. It's great that we put on our church clothes and come to church. But my question to you today is this. What are we going to do when we leave this place? How are we going to live? How are we going to love? How are we going to embrace? How are we going to reach out to people who are desperately hurting? Even those who scorn us and may be God-haters. How are we going to respond? And again, I'll say it like Jesus did. That's a good place for an amen. Like Jesus did. He goes on and says, verse 14, Well, listen, not only your salt, your light. Your light. We're not light generators we're light reflectors. See, we get confused with that. We think if we keep enough rules that somehow we can generate our own light. We can't generate light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. All we can do is reflect the light of Jesus. And by the way, note this. If, if this stand is Jesus and I am a receiver of that light... What happens when something comes between the light source and the light receiver? Can it reflect light? No. No. See, when sin and junk comes in our life, we no longer can reflect the light of Jesus. How can we be the light of the world if we have no light to give? How can we be the light of the world and influence the world when we're not receiving light because junk is in between us? It's time for the church to be the church. It's time for the church. Church, you are the light of the world. And listen, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. You know what we got to see on our trip? Didn't even know it. Two miles from our, our inn where we stayed at in Northern California. The day we checked out, the lady said, Have you been to the lighthouse? I saw the sign. It said lighthouse. I drove by the sign. I'd seen lighthouses before. And here's what she said. This lighthouse is the furthest point west in the continental United States. If you go to that lighthouse, which I didn't because they weren't $7 a person. 
I could see the lighthouse from free from 75. I could see that. But I saw the lighthouse just from a distance. But, but they said, if you stand at that lighthouse on that tip of land, you can go no further, no further west. Next stop, Hawaii. You know why they put the lighthouse there? Because it wouldn't do much good five miles inland. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus says we are reflect light and shine so brightly that we can't be hidden. Why is it the world knows more than we're against than what we're for? Why does the world know more about our rules than about Jesus? We need to set ourselves up reflecting the light of of Christ on a hill so everyone can see the light of Jesus. You don't light a lamp. You don't build a lighthouse five miles inland. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all to see or in the house. So God's people are salt. We preserve and we flavor and we heal. We're light so that darkness is driven away by the light of Jesus Christ. That's what the people of God does. And folks, that's, not, that's what we need to do now. We need to be the light. If you love this country, we need to be light. If you believe there's hope for America, then the answer to that is light. It's Jesus. It's living it, living it, living it, living it. It's loving God and loving people. Loving God and loving people. Loving God and loving people. Can I be honest? I felt anger as I watched that newscast. But I'm telling you, there needs to be anger. But it needs to be directed at the prince of darkness, not people. Let me say that again. There needs to be anger. When Jesus was angry, he directed at evil. And we're going to talk about that in the coming four, five, six, eight weeks. So I'm telling you, yes, there's a need for anger, but not at another person. You understand something? Lost people act like lost people. Sin begets sin. That's what it is, and that's what we're experiencing. And the answer and the hope is Jesus Christ. Give me about three more minutes. I want to go back to 2 Chronicles 7.14. Because all I did was touch on, if my people who are called by my name, people of God are salt, people of God are, are light. Here's what the people of God are to do. For God to do something, this is what we need. Ooh, that's pretty good. For God to do something, this is what we need to do. For God to do something, there's what we need to do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And my wife said to me, what does that mean? It means, listen, a total dependence on God. It's stopping believing in politics that they can fix it. It's stop believing in your security in the almighty dollar. Is stop and believe in your affirmation and the labels you wear, the address you have, and the car you drive, and saying, God, without you, it's not going to happen. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. A total 
dependence on God. Listen, America tasted that on 9-11. America tasted that on December the 7th, 1941. It's amazing how in times of crisis that, that the nation has turned back to God, a dependence on God. I'm calling the church to dependence on God. Not how good our budget is doing, how our crowds are doing, not that. God, we understand if it's going to happen, it's going to be you. It's not going to be a pastor. It's not going to be a deacon. It's not going to be a trustee. It's not going to be a bunch of people. God, if it's going to happen, it's got to be you. Humble themselves and pray. And pray. David, I'm told me the idea of somehow bringing prayer back into our worship service in a way, at least up until the election. I'm not praying for the sick. We, we may. But when I read this and I studied this, and, and frankly, we ended up back here today, I said, God, we pray for the opening, we pray for the close, and we pray for the offering. Maybe we ought to pray for our country. Maybe we ought to pray for our country. I know it's time. But God says, if you're willing to pray, Pray and seek my face. Seek me above all else. Jesus told a parable and said there's a man who was looking for pearls and he found the one great pearl of great price. He went and sold everything he had, everything he had, everything he had and went back and bought the pearl of great price. We've got to understand today that the pearl of great price is Christ. He's worth everything else going Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I love to tell the story of Andy Stanley. He said he gave up marriage counseling because he was so bad at it. But he said, one thing I used to do, he said, I, when I counseled a couple, I would tell them to um, draw a pie, a circle, and then I want you to draw the part that is yours, that you think the problem is. And he said, one, invariably they wouldn't do it, and two, when they did, each person said, well, the problem is this much, and be a little tiny slice. And the other person would draw the pie, and be a little tiny slice. And he was making the point that people have a hard time owning their part of the pie. Is America, at the, is, is America where it is because the church failed? No. America's where it was because we did not find God worthwhile and we chose a sinful lifestyle in America. That's where it is. But part of this pie belongs to us. Because again, while America was going down the tubes, we weren't praying enough. We weren't sharing authentic gospel enough. So part of this pie has belonged to us. And he says, turn or repent from that. God, we admit to you, we acknowledge to you that part of this pie is ours. We don't like that, I know. It doesn't work in marriage counseling either, like I told you. Turn from their wicked ways. And then I, God, will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal God says, and I think this is a promise, even though it's Old Testament made to Solomon, I think the principle remains that if we will humble ourselves, totally depend on God, pray, pray kingdom prayers, I guess is the best way of saying it, seek their face, the pearl of great price, 
Jesus, nothing else matters. Own my piece of the pie, God. What part of it is, lays at my hands and my feet? Then you will forgive and heal. Now, how can I say, well, Dwayne, that sounds pretty strong to say it's a promise. Well, one, when authentic people come to an authentic God and turn from their sins and repent, He forgives. Isn't that the power of the gospel? Isn't that what we tell lost people? If you'll come in an authentic way, if, if you'll speak to an authentic God in an authentic way, and you'll turn from your sin and, and ask God for forgiveness, if you'll turn from your sin and ask for forgiveness and follow Christ, isn't that what we say it means to be saved? Isn't that what it means? So I think that's authentic promise. Dwayne, healing the land, does that mean that means once again, you know, America's going to be the, the, the nation of, of 1776? Don't think so. But I know this. You get a whole bunch of saved people in America and find authentic in love with Jesus, it's going to change something. That neighbor of yours you can't stand, have you thought about sharing Jesus with them? Your mother-in-law that you can't stand, have you thought about sharing the gospel with them? If it's, y'all didn't laugh. That was actually pretty funny. <laughs> you know what somebody was thinking? You don't know my mother-in-law. <laughs> now listen, 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 listen. I'm just saying this. When God says that if we will turn to Him, depend on Him, pray Him, seek Him, and He can bring healing, that healing may well look like revival in America. Is God bringing judgment on America? I think it's really possible. But that doesn't mean He stopped forgiving. It doesn't mean revival can't break out. The Old Testament stories are full of it. Where Israel would turn away from God and they would turn from their sin and God would bring revival. It's not too late, folks. But can I say it one more time? The church has got to be the church. The church has got to be the church. So, I want to leave with this challenge. Dwayne, what should I do? I, I want to encourage you one more time. I, I did several weeks ago. Pray for our country. In your list of prayer things, you know, when you do your prayer thing, just make sure our country's there. I'm going to do my very best working with the staff to make sure that we find time to pray in our worship services for our country. Because, folks, the hope is in Jesus. And this is not fixable by man. It's not fixable by politics. It's not fixable. It never was, by the way. It's not fixable by parties. Jesus is the great physician, and he can bring healing. So here's what we do at the end of the service. We, and again, this is totally different than I expected in this environment, but I like to end our service for our decision time. And David, I think I just like maybe the guitar, okay? Um, I just want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer. Um, the altar space is a little bit close here, but I really want to encourage you, if God genuinely spoke to your heart and you just want to come down and pray, the altar is open this morning. It may be a national matter. It may be your piece of the pie. It may be something going on in your life. I don't know. But I just want to give you that opportunity to come. And by the way, when you, when you seek God, you're going to find Him. You know, God's Word says, when you seek me with all my heart, you'll find me. And so that's what God's message is today. So, so I'd like for us to have David just play. You may stay seated for a few moments. I'll probably have you stand in just a minute. But just go ahead and spend some time. If you're, if you're concerned about the culture, if you're concerned about America and where she is, if you're concerned about your family, your grandchildren's future, this may be a good time to begin. And again, the answer 
is Jesus Christ. And it's time for the church to be the church. So just bow your heads right there. Again, the altar's open. That's one thing we're not used to is these narrow pews. But if you'll just say, excuse me, folks will let you out. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. Let me just begin this with a time of prayer. Father, I love the fact that you orchestrated this day. Probably this side of heaven, we will not know all the answers to why it all came together the way it did. But I love the sweet confidence knowing that you moved the worship in this building. You allowed what happened last night to happen for a very specific reason and cause. Father, I thank you that you're omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, that you're an all-powerful God. I want to pray, Father, that individually we'll let you be the pearl of great price in our lives, that everything else will become secondary, that God, Christ, you will be number one. Father, I pray. Oh, this is specific, Father. I pray, God, that you'll show us our piece of the pie. God, what is it in our lives that we need to tell you about today? What is it? Father, it's so easy to point our fingers. It's easy to look out windows and harder to look in mirrors. But Lord, help us today to look in the mirror and to see what part of the pie belongs to us. God, help us to be a people of faith. Father, as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, that we are a people of faith and that you do not like delight when we shrink back. God, help us not to shrink back. Help us to march boldly in the name of Christ in these critical days. Father, if you're calling someone to the cross today, someone to repentance and to forgiveness, give them the courage even to stand right now and to come. If you're speaking, Father, someone about a renewal of their life, about a recommitment and dedication, help them to come even right now. If you've spoken to someone, Father, about, Father, join this church family, this fellowship, let them come right now. God, have your will and have your way in the stillness of this moment.